0: Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads. A space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space.
1: Welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Maya St. Clair. How are you, Maya?
2: Great. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. And uh, I'm excited about the show today. Um, we have a, a really cool guest. He's been in the ear of our fans, of our listeners for a very long time. Bear McCreary is here today. Uh, Maya, what are some of his uh, credits for folks that may not know um, the name?
2: We start off talking to him about his music for the TV show Battlestar Battle Galactica from sure. early 2000s and since then he's done a lot of innovative work with video games. Um, His most famous is probably the God of War series that he does the Kratos theme for, he does um, Outlander the tv show and lots of other genre works so and he's very excited to be scoring the upcoming live action He-Man movie. Yeah how about that
1: He-Man you know I I wasn't sure we'd ever see another He-Man movie so that's pretty exciting uh, and uh, you mentioned Battlestar Galactica and that's, that's what I, when I hear Bear's name, that's what I think of uh, first. And uh, I got to know him uh, during that period doing some events. I did some stage events with the cast and crew of Battlestar. I got to know them, uh, which was a wonderful experience, just being around them and visiting the setup in Vancouver. Uh, and Bear is one of the, like, uh, like so many people associated with that show, just uh, a restless, creativity uh like a real integrity figure uh someone who's really thoughtful you know everybody that seemed involved with that show really struck me as being thoughtful if that doesn't sound too you know corny but it's true and um so i'm excited to uh have him on the show and uh uh you had some ideas about folks can uh listen to his music or get to know his music a little bit while they're uh, listening to the interview
2: Yeah. So due to some legal technicalities, although we will be constantly referencing sound clips and Mm -hmm. audio beats and musical tracks from both Bear's stuff and from the myriad of works that have inspired him, we cannot include those clips in this podcast, unfortunately. So for your reference, Heavy Metal will be putting together a playlist of all the music that is referenced here so that you can peruse it. If you want, you can pause the podcast and take a listen. We'll have, um, he talks about a lot of classic themes from Elmer Bernstein. We'll have all of those, including from the heavy metal movie and um, culminating in the cover song from Battlestar Galactica that we will not spoil, um, but is absolutely mind blowing once you listen to it. So, and also lots of classic sci-fi themes. So, and and some metal, metal too. (laughs) Bear was wonderful, and it was wonderful learning just the wide universe from which he draws all his inspirations, and how he constantly challenges himself to find new sounds. So, I think everyone's going to really enjoy it. I certainly felt privileged and blown away to be listening to it. So,
1: oh, that's fantastic. Well, it's uh, I'm so glad to hear that, and uh, that's that's great about the uh, playlist. It's much better than my idea, which was I was just going to hum. And uh, I think that, that after like two or three, I think I probably would not have gone as well as it, it, it does in my head. You know, that's my, that's my suspicion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, look, we'll get to the interview. I, I was going to mention, too, is that Bear uh, and I got to know each other best, I think, uh, in 2012, uh, when I was writing for the LA Times. And I had a, a, a blog and a, a, a brand called Hero Complex. And there was a film festival. And Bear uh, was wonderful and came out. And uh, he we had a Pixar day that we did. Uh, and he kicked it off by uh, surprising the crowd by doing a version of You Got a Friend and Me, uh, live for a movie theater audience. And it was magical. Uh, it would, people were there with their kids. And they were getting ready for this uh, Pixar movie. And everybody was super excited. Andrew Stanton was going to come on and do a Q&A, the director, after the film. Um, and uh, uh, it was great because bear works often with film and with television and video games uh but i know he longs to be in front of an audience i know that he loves being in front of an audience and i think you will know, come across in this interview today uh because he knows that you guys are out there listening as an audience so uh here's bear mccreary on mindspace and we'll talk to you at the end of the interview well bear welcome welcome to mindspace this is uh this is a little fun corner of the podcast universe we have in uh uh, the show is, we try to make it about creativity, and we make, try to make it to creative, and you're perfect for any anybody with that kind of mission. Uh, I love the way that you approach your work, and I love the way that you approach storytelling, and, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit just a second ago about uh, these, these are dark days, and, uh, and these are uh, troubling times, and, and art really matters, and, and fiction and transported fiction really matters, and Uh, Do you you have uh, that feeling? Does that energize you sometimes? Or is it kind of hard to get yourself into that sort of uh, mindset?
0: Well, first of all, thanks for letting me be a part of this. Um, I think it's a really cool podcast. And art and creativity are things I love talking about. I almost feel like music notes happen to be the way in which I most often express that. But really, I'm thinking about storytelling and character and emotion. And so that is really where my mindset is. Yeah. Uh, so I love, I love talking about it. I think it's gonna be fun. Um, but yeah, as we were mentioning earlier, the last year has been a very um, unprecedented one, a dark one for a lot of people. And one of the things that I found is that it put in stark relief my perspective on what my contribution to society is. Even as recently I'm like, man, I really want that vaccine. And I'm, I'm looking at the qualifications, and it's like, there is no metric by which I am an essential service. <laughs> I'm not saving people's lives, I'm not delivering them essential goods. You know, it's like I'm the bottom of the chain by that uh, metric because I'm I'm an artist. And yet I have found the sense of joy I get in contributing something to the world that I think the world Needs on an emotional level, not needs on a medical and literal level. But spending the last year uh, in quarantine, working on television shows and movies and video games, as I've myself fallen back on on these art forms to keep myself inspired and, and sane, I feel like uh, you know storytellers are providing something else, something that is emotionally needed. Um, and in many ways, I do think that that inspires. Uh, fiction and storytelling of all kinds but especially the kind of escapist fair that I know you and I grew up with seems to come out of times of of intense stress
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and uh I've always thought uh you know William Goldman in his screenwriting book he he has a line uh I can't remember the exact quote but it's pretty funny about how uh difficult it is to live in Los Angeles and and be a writer because it's so nice out like you know like uh, uh and and you know people say like if you think about uh, as far as the, uh, the, the written word, you know, the great novels are from Russia and from Ireland and England, and, you know, uh, there's not a ton yep. of, uh, you know, Tahitian literature or, you know, like, uh, as far That's as. That's totally true. Yeah. I mean, I it it's, a a, yeah, the, it's definitely this feeling that
0: great art is born of pain, um, right. which to a degree, you know, is true i mean the most authentic art that we love comes from people that have had part of the human experience and lived to tell about it you know and and god i mean when i was a teenager even like i i i had almost a quarter life crisis when i thought the best art came from people that you know didn't live to tell about it i mean and when i was realizing I was starting to put together all my heroes. It's like Kurt Cobain was the first shocker for me. And then I realized George Gershwin died in his early thirties. Ravel died young, Beethoven went deaf and you start realizing like, whoa, 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 hold on. Every single person I whose music I admire had a tragic short life. Is that what is necessary? Um, and in many ways, what got me out of that um, was, was meeting one of my heroes, Elmer Bernstein. I met him when I was 16 and it, Jeff, to say it was an eye opener is an understatement. Cause I was like, oh, oh, this guy's old. He's like in his late seventies and he's uh, uh, revered. He's a Titan of his industry. He was one of the first major film composers to burst out sort of after the initial golden age of Hollywood. And he's a wonderful sweet guy with a family. Like I was like, I got it. That's what I want to be. Like, I, I want to be the artist that also like, you know gets to overcome pain. Not that Elmer had an easy life. Uh, he was right. blacklisted in the 50s you know I mean he right. he had a lot of trouble uh, trouble. but yeah. that was inspiring to me and it's it does make you realize like you do need to live a, a dynamic life in order to be able to create art that resonates with people
1: absolutely and and the sustained artist the the one that uh, uh, you know can explore craft and 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 also uh, connect their art to different parts of their life uh, different periods of their life you know like I, you think about like Johnny Cash with his albums his later albums with Rick Rubin and how you know we hadn't really had albums like that in in rock and roll or uh you know where someone an artist staring into the twilight you know and like yeah how how different that perspective is uh but you when you were talking about Herman uh you gotta tell a little bit of that story about meeting uh oh
0: meeting Elmer uh I yeah, so oh.
2: can yeah, I, can was... I butt in as the assistant just to give the audience a bit of background?
1: Maya, please join yeah. us. What's up? Hi,
2: yeah, Mindspace assistant here. Um, I think our audience might be interested to know, as heavy metal fans, that Elmer Bernstein was the composer for the heavy metal score for the movie in
1: 1981. Yeah, it's uh, a big
2: Absolutely. one.
0: Absolutely. One of my favorite scores of his.
1: Is um, it?
2: Yeah, oh my God! Any
0: facts
2: that I, you like totally, in particular? Um, I know so Tarnas really, theme but it's, is. is tar, I was
0: about to say it's Tarnas theme. I mean Tarnas theme, which um, uh, I, I <laughs> um, borrowed liberally from <laughs> when I got my very first sort of sweeping space opera epic, which was a video game for Capcom called Dark Void. Very sort of little known game at this point. I even hired the owned Martineau player. The owned Martineau is an early electronic instrument. Actually, maybe even one of the first. Elmer famously told the story of, um, or he famously used the owned Martineau all throughout the 80s. You hear it in the opening of Ghostbusters. It sounds like, people assume it's a theremin. It's not, it's a keyboard instrument with a, a ribbon that triggers a, an oscillator. It's an early synthesizer, wow. but what's funny, heavy metal, is where he learned about the instrument. And his orchestrator at that time said, "Hey, I got, I, I want to try this thing out." And on Tarna's theme, he threw it in. They just had an owned player, and Elmer was conducting. And he said he stopped, and he goes, "What?" He turns around and looks at his guy. What is that? <laughs> and sure enough, it became such a signature part of his sound that later on in his career there were stories of like John Landis and other directors saying like just don't use that damn theremin thing you know really because he would use it in everything but it was a beautiful sound and I used uh, the own own player he used on Dark Void because I just said I want I want that sound yeah, yeah he heavy won. metal what a great score
1: well and, um, and what an amazing uh, to become his protege in, in so many ways right I mean that uh, absolutely as, I, I was uh... I was
0: among his last uh, protégés. I worked with him for almost 10 years. I met him in my small town where I grew up, Bellingham, Washington. And he, as it turns out, kept a sailboat in the harbor because it was the last harbor uh, before you basically hit Canada. And he would go up and sail to Alaska and back. He was a, a sailor, among many other things. So the guy at the local yacht club knew him. And I was student of the month at the Rotary Club my junior year. And I got up and, you know, they said, this is Bear McCreary. He wants to go to uh, USC and study film scoring. And so this guy, Joe Coons, who got a signed CD for the rest of my career until he passed away (laughs) last year. I mean, seriously, like this guy changed my life. He comes up to me and he goes, I've got a friend in the business. Maybe you'd like to meet him. Have you heard of Elmer Bernstein? (laughs) So. Uh, I met him when he came up to, uh, to to his boat. I met him my junior year of high school, and uh, he wrote me a letter to get into USC, which I'm sure was helpful. And I started sitting in on his classes and uh, started working for him over the summers while I was attending USC, and um, and 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 learned so much about really the the art and the craft and life from him. I learned basically nothing about the business because by that point, the film music business had evolved and he was one of those few, I mean, literally five that could survive this tectonic shift when technology took over. You had Elmer Bernstein, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, Ennio Morricone. I mean, I'm running out now. Everybody else had to learn how to make MIDI mock-ups, how to make use samples, how to use sequencers, how to pray, play a cue in advance there were these handful of guys that were famous enough that it could they could say no 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 i'll sit at a piano and play you some stuff and then you hear your cues with the orchestra otherwise like i'm not gonna i'm not interested sorry yeah so i got to kind of watch him you know deal with filmmakers in the same way he did in the 50s and so i learned a lot about the art form and film and narrative he was so just inspiring he changed my life you know i mean i learned um uh, it really, I became who I am as an artist, I think, because he gave me the tools to do that.
1: Wow. As you say that, it reminds me of uh, when I was at the LA Times that there were some of the uh, the journalists that had really risen during the 60s and 70s and 80s that were still there, uh, you know, come the 90s. And some of them just would not do, like, email or would not do, yeah. like, a, a particular... Uh, you know, uh, software, and they would have someone come and do it for them. And uh, it was that last, right on the paradigm shift, it was the on the cusp, the, the folks that were still valuable enough that the, the new school had to shift to yes. the old school for them. Uh, and you think about all the institutional memory that they brought. And then as, as those people move out, all the people that you lose, uh, you know, and it's a baton handoff. But I mean, what an extraordinary experience. And it sounds like he was just a, a lovely guy. He, he really was. And one of the things I, I was very fortunate
0: in meeting him of all people because he took uh, an extraordinary interest in passing on his knowledge. He and Henry Mancini, um, who they were friends. I mean, they were, they were peers. And they really took film music history, passing their information forward, sharing their enthusiasm, teaching. That was a huge part of their lives. Um, so Elmer, you know, took a huge interest in me and took me under his wing and, um, you know, I mean, I, I like, I lived at his house for a summer when I was uh, house sitting for him. My first paid job as a musician, he goes, all right, I need you to house sit my ho- home in Santa Barbara. Uh, you need to feed the dogs, you need to wash the cars, you know, just like, oh, the, there's, there was animals and chicken coops. Like, I, <laughs> you know, I was not an animal person. And I was like, you got it, buddy. I'll learn how to do that. And he says, and I've been getting fan requests for this old score, King of, Kings of the Sun, an old Yul Brynner uh, adventure pick that had never been on TV, never been released on home format. And this original master tapes of the soundtrack had been thrown out by the studio. And he goes, I want to re-record it uh, next year. Here's my handwritten pencil sketches while you're house sitting and take care of the dogs. Just reorchestrate the whole film and I'll you know, <laughs> pay a couple of bucks. So think about this, Jeff for in terms of like orchestration and film music. I took his handwritten pencil sketches, spent a summer like, yes, taking care of the dogs, but also just like hanging out in the hot tub in Santa Barbara, you know, yeah. like I spent a summer reorchestrating it from scratch, doing everything I could to get inside his sketches and understand his intention. Then at the end of the summer, he came, I, he came home, I printed them all out and he showed me all the places I messed up. It was mm-hmm. like red pencil time. I learned more that summer than I would have if I became a PhD in, you know, orchestration. Uh, it was incredible. Um, and ultimately at the last recording session of his life, Kings of the Sun, the entire score, my orchestration was recorded. Wow. Um, so I feel like, you know, I, I got to contribute back to his legacy in a very small way.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, when, um, when you go from, idea to the page or idea to the keyboard or, uh, uh, you know, whether it's musical or computer, um, there's all the things that go into that, that lead up to that moment. And, and one of the things that, uh, I think is interesting is, uh, I'll, I'll compare it to like uh, filmmaking is there's filmmakers who go out and live life and then make movies. And then there's filmmakers who watch movies and then make movies.
0: Uh, yes. and, and
1: it's a different, you're, you're, you're
0: sort of like Sam Peckinpah V Steven Spielberg.
1: Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. You know, like when Spielberg was making Jaws, you know, they, I, uh, there was the, uh, uh, the line that someone said is like, you know, this is a guy that's never knows what it's like to, to wait under someone's balcony and, and, and have their heart broken because he's, he's a teenager. He, yes. you know, he doesn't know that. Uh, yeah. Not that that happens in Jaws anyway, but.
0: Uh, no, exactly. But, but, but yeah, no, it's interesting how uh, all art forms have a certain form of like cyclical, inspiration movies that inspire uh filmmakers and I mean I am I am way more in that camp I mean I have wanted to be a film composer since I was five so when I'm scoring like a searing drama it's not like I'm there's a wellspring of like oh I'm remembering when I you know worked at a cannery you know it's like no man I've been an artist since day one so I don't think I think they're both valid but it is an interesting like different ways of approaching the storytelling medium
1: well, how, what do you do to make sure, do you, uh, is there anything that you do that makes you, uh, that you set aside like uh, any sort of practices that you have to, to find new levels of inspirations and, and, uh, and especially with sounds, I mean, because you, you've included some wonderfully exotic and tribal things in some of your work and, and uh, I'm sure people wonder, you know, how did you find that? How did you get that? Where did that come from?
0: Well, those are those are great questions, uh, Jeff. And I think there was actually sort of two questions like one, I always try to find emotional inspiration and truth that I feel. So I am drawing from a wellspring of my experience. And yes, I've I've lived the artist's life. But you know, life isn't easy for anyone. So anytime you're, you know, you're, you're drawing from heartbreak and crushing disappointments or elation that, you know, something happened or when you were in love, these are all emotions you need when you're telling a story. I'm sure as a writer typing words onto a page, you're drawing from that same thing. I think we all want something authentic. So I never, you know, sort of think, well, this is a scene where we're supposed to be happy. I'll use a major seven chord there, next. You know, it's, it's very personal. Um, in terms of the sounds, I find sounds inspiring. So I often am gravitating towards projects that allow me to explore things I don't know. So a lot of that is sort of in the selection of where I put my time and energy, what projects I take on. Mm -hmm. Um, Before I did Battlestar Galactica, I was realizing like, as I was emerging into this uh, job, it was my first job, I was 20, I think when I took over the show as composer you know I was Elmer Bernstein's protege I grew up listening to Jerry Goldsmith I didn't even listen to non-orchestral music until I was 14 Really? suddenly oh my god like and the reason I listened to anything that wasn't film music was I realized Danny Elfman had a rock band and then I realized those songs from Highlander had a band that made them so I was like huh Like Oingo Boingo, Pink Floyd, Queen, that's, and then I was like, oh, rock and roll is really cool. But I mean, it was seriously like 14 or 15 before I gravitated away from that. So imagine Battlestar comes up and it's like, oh my God, this is like super modern. Uh, I am, I don't know anything about taiko drums. I don't really know anything about like synthesis and modern scoring, but it's like time to learn, you know? And, And learn I did. I mean, I really studied Japanese um, taiko drumming, why those patterns are what they are, the way they work. It doesn't mean I adhered to those rules, but I wanted to understand those rules. And I had so much fun, um, and learned so much that I, I just, that became my de facto, um, philosophy moving forward. Uh, when I got started on, um, God of War for Sony PlayStation, I did not really know anything about Norwegian folk music, but I was like, what a great opportunity to learn about this and learn about, Um, these languages and these cultures. And, and I think part of what you're hearing when you listen to my music is the joy that I feel in discovering these things. Um, And in many ways, it's sort of why I kind of hop from style to style, because it's like, awesome. I did that. And uh, in the wake of Battlestar Galactica, there were many opportunities to do like, Japanese kind of drums and do that drum music. And and for a while, actually, I, I kind of went cold Turkey. I was like, uh-uh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not doing that. I'm just, I had no interest in doing that. I did that. Yeah. Um, and uh, only when projects came along that I could recontextualize that. For example, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. When I was like, okay, it's Godzilla. I yeah. must use Japanese drums. Yeah, like yeah. the most, the whole franchise started with what you think are, Godzilla drum uh, footsteps I gave away my spoiler footsteps over black in the first film in the 50s but in fact it was it was taiko drum so it's like I gotta use it and then it gave me a a newfound approach into that kind of tribal drumming so that's why I take on anything is an opportunity to grow and learn
1: yeah that's really interesting it's like a a, like a uh, you're a paratrooper you know You, you you come in you fly in and then you uh, you land and you you take everything in and you do your mission and you get out and go somewhere else.
0: That's a great way to think about it. Um, yeah, and it and and it's a frenzied kind of like crazy experience where I'm just going to learn as much as I can and 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 then move on to something else. You know, yeah. um, and uh, it's really inspiring. It's fun.
1: The uh, and that Battlestar, you know, and that's I, you know when we met was back. Uh, when I was doing some stuff, writing some stuff, and visited the set of Battlestar, and, and started doing live events with the cast and stuff, um, and that one it does—I mean that that it, it just jumped off the screen, it jumped out of the speakers, you know—it uh, really seized people that music and that show, and uh, it had so many layers the show that. Uh,
0: it, I um, I agree, and I think it's worth pointing out, you know, for our our younger listeners out there, uh-huh. that Battlestar today swims in an ocean of excellent genre storytelling in television that is mature, modern, has casts that are incredible, and is sort of extremely satisfying in every way television can be. It is worth pointing out that Battlestar was among a handful. That's right. Of shows, I mean, immediately lost springs to mind. But I mean, name me three others that were on the air at the time that that pioneered that. And and in and of course, in some ways, you know, it's like we had fully animated CG characters that are starting to show their age. But it's like Battlestar was so far ahead of its time. I, it, it's just crazy. It's yeah. crazy how unprecedented it was. And for people that maybe go back and binge it now to understand that while there were uh, obviously executives and producers that believed in it and fought for it and, and, and dedicated their lives to it, we, they were fighting against a tidal wave of corporate pressure to make it land on a planet, solve a mystery and go away again. That, yeah. that is the mold for genre um, television at that time. And it's like, so it is funny, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that people still remember Battlestar and thrilled that people still seem to find it and yet I can't help but think like are you tracking what a big deal this show was in 2003 you know what I mean like it's crazy how much that changed things and and again just to put my own perspective on it how fortunate I was that that was what put me on the, the map of the film scoring world. I was super young, knew nothing about operating on a television show in a professional manner. And that sort of taught me, well, that's how you make TV. That's what it's supposed to be, Battlestar Galactica.
1: Yeah, and it, uh, it's, it's extremely well said, you're right. And, I mean, you know, there, if you look at the genre stuff, I mean, you, it had things like, you know, obviously Star Trek, Next Generation, uh, you, Babylon 5, you had uh, things like Twin Peaks uh lead up things like in
0: that format those were exceptional and throw in x files is also like a great way to do case of the week and but it was always case of the week and a little uh little main story i mean and you can see Battlestar succumbing to that pressure we all know the episodes that were obviously red meat thrown to the wolves that's like you gotta have an episode where you know, chief yeah. goes and solves a union strike. You know, right. or, or, and they're not bad episodes, um, but you can feel what they were. You know, right. let us make sixteen other great episodes, so we'll, God, we'll give you this one.
1: You know, yeah. and did you know uh, how long did it take you with once you had the mission and the assignment and and uh, start getting to know it to get to that 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 theme? Uh, did you the conceptually did you have uh, direction and and did you have inspiration or well, you know, it, uh, struggle?
0: The whole vision of the score was evolving constantly. So it, it's actually very much a, a work in progress from the beginning of the miniseries all the way to the end. And I also think it is the way in which Battlestar Galactica's music, I think, did something that I was really proud of and I was given space to do it, which is keep pace with an ever-evolving story. I mean, you you can feel I'm hinting at how groundbreaking Battlestar was. Perhaps the biggest way in which it was is that characters had massive arcs. They did 180s that became 360s. They were so conflicted, well-crafted, well-written characters. The role of music at that time in television, predominantly, was to just tell you, if you weren't watching, you're doing the dishes, oh, I'm watching Law and Order. And it worked. You know what I mean? Like, it was so clear that it made it sort of challenging to approach something like Battlestar. Okay? We start... We start doing things that are thematic. We start using themes for specific characters. What do you do with a character like Starbuck, who's obviously in the in the pilot, like she's the hero. And even that is daring. It yeah. was even, dare I say, controversial. Okay, but by episode eight of season one, she's torturing a guy. Yeah. And we kind of think she's wrong to do it. That's eight episodes in. By the time we get to 70 hours later, she is so, Fascinating. And her theme had to just evolve and evolve. And I had to write her different ones and meld them together at the end. Um, the fact that I had the space to do that meant that, you know, the vision of the show really was all right, what are we doing this week? Let's, and and I love that I had the space to do that. That and and really it was it was brave at the time to say, like, okay, let's, you know, the last time we heard Starbucks theme was this heroic thing but you know getting into season three it's like I think now that she's talking with Leoben and he's hinting at something divine something prophetic about her like I gotta I gotta introduce new material I'm starving for musical material and they let me do it um so it you know I, I think it, it it is epitomized by by the introduction of which I won't spoil but a song (laughs) 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 that meant something i mean seriously no spoilers a decade later um but it's like that where the writers came to me and said hey we want to do this you know that you realize like wow there are there are no rules here that must have
1: been quite a meeting that must have been quite it was like come on are you serious you want
0: to hear you want to hear how it went yeah (laughs) again i won't spoil it so the editor calls me up and he goes hey so i'm working on this song for this episode and i go i'm sorry what you know this this song that we're licensing, and I'm like, oh, oh, I haven't even heard of that. I caught Ron D. Moore in the hallway while I was spotting an, an, another episode. I was like, Ron, Ron, um, uh, that song I I just heard. We're we're doing a version of that song. What do you uh, what do you want it to sound like? And he's like, oh, right, uh, yeah, that. I, I don't know. Just um, make it sound like Battlestar. And, I, and then he kept going, and I was like, uh, <laughs> uh okay. So I made a demo and I was like, how about George Harrison meets Rage Against the Machine meets Indian music. Like, I was like, you know what? This is such a weird opportunity. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do the version that's gonna get thrown out. And then I'll always know, like at least I tried something daring and cool. And um, I'm telling you, Jeff, the demo, I can hear the difference because it has, you know, fake drums and samples and some stuff, but fans, you would not, know the difference. Like when I sent that demo in, Ron was like, well, okay, that's it. And it was, you know what I mean? And it was crazy. I mean, what an inspiring uh, opportunity. And here's the craziest thing. When I wrote it, I did not know its narrative function. Really? All I knew is that we needed it for something. Yeah. And so when I watched the first cut of the episode in question, how it was actually used blew my mind. And it's worth actually pointing out, like as much as I, one one of the techniques I use to stay inspired on a television show is wherever possible, I don't read the scripts Mm -hmm. because it robs me of the opportunity to have the fans experience of just watching what we have and having an immediate emotional reaction and going, I know what to do. When I read the scripts, I'm making decisions that like a hundred other people are going to make. I'm casting it. I'm performing the lines, I'm editing it, I'm doing the effects and I'm kind of like, I'm already forming musical opinions based on that. Right. And that, with that said, I do read the script. Sometimes you have to, but I'm telling you, man, working on a show like Battlestar where every week you go, send me the episode, I'm going to start writing it. And I, just like the fans, I'm like, what? Like right. my mind is getting blown every week. That was an amazing experience, just That's as a amazing. creator and a fan.
1: Yeah, and, and, and also it's, it's such, you know, uh, when you're saying what Ron said, it's so nice to work with people that have the assurance of knowing when they don't need to get their fingerprints on things or when they don't need to say, you know, uh, some people will, will uh, I've worked with during the years, they'll, they'll, they'll wanna change something just because they wanna have their fingerprints on it uh, or, or- Oh, 100%. Or,
0: or they feel that if they don't right. offer notes, Oh, they're looking around like, oh, people are going to think I don't know what I'm doing. And I have found, I mean, yes, I mean, just to underline what you've said a thousand times, the best art is made with artists that are secure in surrounding themselves with other brilliant artists. And I have found um, part of the business side of navigating the industries, I've learned to adapt to all styles. So if you want to give me a, a million notes for months on end, I'll still navigate that. I can totally do it but you give me some creative freedom and trust and let me try something, Uh, most of the best work I have done comes from those relationships. And I really appreciate the people that are um, in that position to do that.
1: Wow. You know, I I, I chatted with, uh, you mentioned Danny Elfman. I chatted with him for a a deadline story I was writing uh, about a year year ago maybe. And uh, he mentioned it's like, the only time I've worked with a director that really knew music, uh, it kind of threw him off. Uh, and he said it was Warren Beatty uh, who had like, that he, he, he could say, I want something like this, this and this and actually speak in the language that uh, is native to people that do what you do. Um, have you, what's your experience with that sort of similar kind of uh, uh, interaction? Um, it's very tricky.
0: It's very tricky and uh, even uh, filmmakers that innately understand music, their brain is stretched in half. I mean, I understand filmmaking, but I still kind of like focus on, you know, on what I'm doing. I'm not also thinking about, hey man, let me give you VFX notes while we're here, check out in the background, that's a little blurry. Like I could do that, I yeah. don't, you know, cause I'm like concentrating on what I do. Um, but uh, most of the time I have found that, um, even when filmmakers want to speak contextually about music, it's always easier for them to speak contextually about filmmaking and storytelling. So, so rarely do I gravitate the conversation that way and have them go, stop, 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 stop. I'm talking about clarinets. Is it a B-flat clarinet or an E-flat clarinet? Answer the question, sir. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like they, um, There's a trick I, I learned from Elmer and I I say this to young composers all the time, like if I could dilute my 10 years with him to one piece of advice. Wow. It's a a question to ask filmmakers. Whenever you are lost, whenever you think they're lost, whenever there's tension in the room, whenever you're confused, whenever a cue gets thrown out, there's only one thing you need to ask a director. Hmm. What do you want the audience to feel? Hmm. When you ask that, and you word it exactly that way, Every director, their vision just solidifies immediately. I've never had a filmmaker go, I don't know, you tell me. Never. And it's the way you're wording it. You're not saying like, well, what are you trying to say? What do you wanna do? Is it supposed to be scary? No, it's what do you want the audience to feel is such a fundamental truth to what we are even doing here. Every filmmaker goes, well, they're supposed to be scared. I want them to feel like, this is about to die, but but you know, whatever. I want them to feel, I want them to laugh. I want them to feel joy. I want them to, you know, I'm often surprised, especially if I'm confused or I'm like, man, this this is not, I'm, I mean, like I'm making this as scary as I can. What is wrong? What do you want the audience to feel? I want them to feel relief that, and feel joy that the character, you know, like a scene ago, that character's alive because the main character's thinking about that. And you're like, oh like oh I get that's, it yeah, so that a, the mood again, like totally that conversation has never steered me wrong wow. uh especially when it's like well the temp does this can we listen to the temp again the temp does that and it's sort of like okay yeah cool let's listen to it what do you want the audience to feel it always pulls you closer to the truth mm-hmm. um and that's one of those things when I was talking about the things I learned from Elmer that, um, you know, yes, he'd, he'd been in the business since 1953, but there was a piece of wisdom there that I've not heard from anybody else. Yeah. Because it's like, well, make your sample sound like this and like, oh, you know, conforming picture and, you know, blah, 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 do it all. The, and it's like, man, that is the core of what we're doing. I'm trying to help a director answer that question in every scene.
1: It's elemental. You know, it's simple, but it's elemental. And, and simple doesn't mean easy always It and sometimes it just means basic you know or, or elemental
0: uh, yeah and you know directors are no matter no matter where they are they are they are scared because they are in a scary position everything's on the line if this movie is a complete piece of crap it my career is going to be fine yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> like it it is even the actors it's like does not matter and for the director though that director jail that's real you know yeah. what I mean? So while for us, it's like, yeah, man, I'm putting music in a thing. In a way, it's like, I think of it like um, I'm your defense attorney and you're facing a a 10-year prison sentence. The 10 years of movie jail, if this movie's bad. Yeah. Or I'm a heart surgeon and, and this movie is your child. And it's like, of course the parent is like freaking out. So part of your job is not just to be like, yo, I've operated on the hearts all the time. What's your problem? No, yeah. you come in and go, I... I understand how you feel, and it's going to be okay. It's a like, hostage situation. It is. <laughs> it is. It's a, these are and what what are all the analogies we're making, Jeff? Intense, high stakes, high emotion um, situations that require the professional be measured, and calm, and cool. Right. And uh, and so yeah, I mean, it's like there's so many things you have to master in. To, to, to really succeed in, in the entertainment business. I mean, I'm obviously screenwriters and actors. Everybody has their own version of this. But but for me, that that's mine, where it's like, if your director starts panicking, like, well, we're in the temp, and, and I don't like clarinets and, you know, all this stuff, you can answer their questions. I'm just going to answer every question you ask. They are spooling themselves up, and they're getting more and more freaked out. When really, yeah. what do you want the audience to feel? I get that now. Let me go do that and play it for you.
1: The the funniest thing I ever heard of a director not funniest it was it's somewhat funny but it's also uh, just very uh, revealing. Uh, I saw John Favreau the day that he locked Iron Man two, which was a very stressful production. You know they rushed that movie yeah. because Iron Man the first Iron Man was so successful, and uh, you know the the triumvirate between Kevin Feige and Robert Downey Jr. and, and and John Favreau on the first one, that triangle of power shifted for the second one because Downey was now suddenly the, sec- the biggest movie star in the world uh, at that point. And uh, uh, I asked him how he was doing, and he just he looked a wreck, quite honestly. John, I mean, it, it was a really tough uh, process. And he said, Jeff, do you know the story of El Cid? I said, uh, Well, I've heard the title, but I gotta tell you, John, I actually have never read that book and I've never seen that movie. I'm sorry. He said, well, in a nutshell, El Cid leads these, these troops and he's a great leader, but they're you know facing a great challenge and they're about to win the final battle and save the day and, and everything's going to be done. Uh, but then El Cid's killed, he's dead. And uh, the final battle's about to start. And his his lieutenants, they take him and they put him in his, his saddle and they strap him in. They strap a sword to his hand and on a, up on the ridgeline they smack the horse on the ass and it runs and the troops look up and they see El Cid on the on the hill and they're like El Cid and then they win the battle. on El Cid. <laughs> oh my god,
0: what a great story.
1: Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I um I definitely have a have a great empathy for um for filmmakers and and as a department head myself, I on a mo- on a smaller scale, I know that Feeling of walking into a room of a couple hundred people all staring at you, thousands of dollars per minute being spent, and the execs are on the other side of the glass, everybody's staring at you, you know, and then all that happens is problems. Pro Tools shut down, a violinist is like, I'm missing page four, and you're just just like, you've got to keep, you've got to kind of like, the appearance is as much as anything else of being in control and being calm. Yeah, man. That's a, that's a great, that's a great story. The funniest thing is uh, I saw
1: him, I saw him at the Spider-Man premiere, you know, this last Spider-Man film uh, and I walked up and hey, how you doing? And started talking to him and I said, you know, I got to tell you, of all the people I've interviewed since I've been doing it since I was 17, it's a lot of people, I've rarely, if ever had anybody come up with such a great analogy to their situation, their moment in time. He goes, I told you, I said that. And I'm like, yeah, you said it. It's the first line of the story. I published it. And he goes, you put that in the paper?
3: <laughs> I'm
0: like,
1: yeah, I uh, so I think, Well was man, like, you 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 got him in a vulnerable time for sure. Yeah, yeah, I got to know John really well. We used to spend a lot of time together, like professionally, like on sets and things like that. And uh, uh, he, I think he was just a, very vulnerable and candid at that moment. I felt bad that he didn't remember it, uh, but uh, I have it on tape, so that was like you know you really did yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was great it was great uh you know with elmer there's so many movies that he did I, i'm wondering if there's one that uh that you would say either surprise you or, or or you find something uh in it if not it's okay but like or no, one that yeah. you just love like great escape was like maybe one of, of my course. favorite movies ever okay. yeah I mean, well
2: you escape... think i can butt in as the assistant and give the audience a kind of recap of the elmer bernstein uh, over.
0: Please, um, I was going to start with that. That would be helpful.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, he did the Magnificent Seven. Uh-huh. Um, I remember one moment in my childhood when we sat down to watch the Ten Commandments, and it starts with this great overture and just being absolutely blown out of my mind by the, the theme for the Ten Commandments. Um, so he did that. He did disney's black cauldron he did airplane
1: airplane airplane 2 funny farm yeah animal yeah. house animal house, house ghostbusters ghostbusters 2
0: mm-hmm. um, uh, not ghostbusters 2
1: not ghostbusters 2
0: quick funny story so elmer one of the things that happened in his career he was typecast and had to break out of it twice once he became the western guy after magnificent seven he did the shootest He did so many Westerns and he studied with Aaron Copeland. I mean, like he's that Americana language was like under his fingertips. And in the seventies, he was like, no more Westerns. That's it, no more Westerns. Of course, he did one more, Three Amigos. Why (laughs) did he do one more? Because he became typecast as the comedy guy. Why did that happen? He wrote the most, I'm gonna soften my language. One of the most influential scores of all time. Animal House. That is Animal House. Yes, Animal House. Until then, all comedy was madcap, crazy, zany music. You got to make the audience laugh. So, a young filmmaker named John Landis, whose best friend growing up was Peter Bernstein, Elmer took the two of them to see the Beatles when they were kids. Wow. John Landis gets his first, um, you know, big break. And he's telling the execs at Universal, they go, well, who do you want to score this thing? And he goes, I want Elmer Bernstein to score it. They laughed at him. First of all, Elmer wouldn't do a movie like this. And second of all, like we would never even ask him. Like, there's no way, there's no way. Well, they didn't know he knew him. So he calls up Elmer and he goes, I got my first movie, I really want you to do it. And Elmer's like, I, I love you, I want to help you. But like, I, 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 why would I, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do a comedy like that. And he goes, no, no, no. I want it to be serious. I want it to be. Totally serious. That, I mean, when you look at scores that changed everything from there, I mean, it in a way it reshaped Elmer's entire career. Airplane came immediately thereafter. I mean, an airplane was even, you know, the, 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 they, they pitched it as Animal House on a plane. I mean, the, the film itself was influential. Huh. They get Elmer to do it and he does the same thing. Yeah. Um, so Ghostbusters, very similar vibe. Um, and you know, Elmer became like the pioneering comedy composer, despite yes, heavy metal came in this period. Um, and Elmer told me, I don't, I don't know how public this was, but hey man, it's been 20 years since his passing. Yeah. He goes, when they offered me Ghostbusters 2, that was it. That, that it, it was like, when that, it was staring him in the face that I'm doing nothing but comedies and now Ghostbusters 2, it wasn't a judgment on the film, it was a judgment on his career. He right. was like, nope, no more comedies. And he quit working for a couple of years. I mean, it was really a massive reinvention until an Irish filmmaker took a chance on him. My left foot and mm-hmm. dah, two dramas, then what happens? Cape Fear, Age of Innocence, Bringing Out the Dead, Marty Scorsese picks him up. I mean, then it's like in the nineties, he's like the drama guy. Yeah. And, and, and he came back to some comedies. And, and oh. um, so it's interesting, oh. but like he got so typecast so many times, but that means that it's like, depending on what your context is, it's like, yes, uh, you know, dramatic films like the Birdman of Alcatraz mm-hmm. um, and uh, my favorite, the one I was going to Kill pick- to, to Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. This score, not as famous for being groundbreaking or even arguably as groundbreaking as Animal House, But for me, the definitive modern score. This was written in 1960, but it sounds like James Horner doing a a modern dramatic score in 1988. Okay, like it sounds like cinema. I'm putting finger quotes in the air, like like you guys can see it, but it is so timeless. And when you think like in 1960, no one was doing anything like this. You know what I mean? And in a way, it's like he hit the bullseye for like cinematic, timeless drama in a way that's so beautiful that it has yet to be topped. That title sequence in To Kill a Mockingbird um, isn't showy and it isn't um, like a big genre piece or a big epic, but man, I mean, that's one of those pieces of music that's like, as a composer, I, I, I live in the shadow of that piece wow. for my entire life
1: it's like the sound of literature Uh, it's like it's a literary music almost
0: absolutely and it is um it is one of the the, one of the trends that started to happen in the 50s that elmer was a part of pioneering with the man with the golden arm pioneering one of the first jazz scores i mean (laughs) this guy was out there you know um that the a movie doesn't necessarily sound like western classical music before that If it's a pirate adventure, if it's King Kong, whatever it is, it sounds like Shostakovich. It just does, you know? Um, I mean, I love Max Steiner and all those guys, but it's like they set in place what films sound like. But for me, the passion came from like, wait, so your, your movie's about a jazz drummer? How about Hear Me Out? (laughs) <laughs> There's jazz in the score, and it, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. pff, minds were blown at the time. That really was daring, yeah. uh, and 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 of course, Mancini, Quincy Jones were a part of this. Jerry that Goldsmith picked it up. Bernard Herman was really the first, so it's not like Elmer was the only one. But that that to me, that little pocket of like, what does a drama sound like? An intimate character drama that isn't like a soapy like violins or soaring kind of classical piece, it's To Kill a Mockingbird. And yeah. it was great then, and it's great now.
1: You know, for you, it, it, and you have a similar uh, uh, task of reinvention uh, or invention, I should say, because of, uh, you know, on your watch, we've had video games uh, just become uh, in, in some ways bigger than Hollywood. Uh, and, Absolutely. You know, and make more money than movies.
0: Um, you were talking about John Favreau a minute ago, and one of my favorite moments on this topic is the weekend that Iron Man came out. Variety. I remember having it in my hand. Front page blah, blah, blah. Iron Man makes $150 million. Bring out the crown. Page eight Grand yeah. Theft Auto IV has made like $500 million. It is the fastest grossing thing ever made in the entertainment medium and it's not the front page and i remember reading that being like wow guys talk about burying the lead
1: yeah of no, where it's...
0: the industry's going
1: absolutely it this is...
0: thing made like two and a half iron man and you're not talking about it
1: absolutely and it's going to make more next weekend and iron man's going to make less you know or yes it's going to fall off pretty precipitously
0: and and, you know? and to say that like they can rival the mcu with two games arguably even one. I mean, like I shudder to think what Grand Theft Auto V has made. Yeah. In the last, you know, six, seven years, whatever it's been.
1: And, and, so, and Yeah, that's, that's
0: a huge title shift.
1: And what's that like, as far as like, uh, you know, assembling what the rules are, you know, you were saying like, you know, in Hollywood, if you did this, it would sound like this. There was a template mentality there, uh, you know, uh, especially during the studio system years. Um, but for you and, and for your generational peers, What's a uh, how when you look at you survey all the video game stuff that's been done and where it's at as a medium? Uh, what do you see and how do you feel about it? And how's it what's the big challenge there?
0: Well, video games are a crucial part of my creative life, my passions. I grew up playing games, I am part of the generation of game composers that play games and. Right. Some of the ones ahead of me just don't, you know? Um, And I am also generationally perfectly placed along with my peers um, where the games are evolving, the technology's evolving, tastes are evolving, all kind of at the same pace. So that uh, by the time I emerged into the business mid 2000s, early 2000s, uh, you know, games had been flying under the radar. Nobody was really paying attention. People still thought they were bleeps and bloops, yeah. you know? And with that said, man, I love those bleeps and bloops. <laughs> Some of my favorite pieces of music when I was a kid were uh, the Mega Man scores from the Nintendo era. Like I had no judgment. I mean, if anything, I, I always say that like the writers of those um, 8-bit and 16-bit games only had a few colors They only had a few voices, so you know what? The only thing they could use is melody and rhythm. They used basic pieces of music making to make their music memorable, and it's still memorable. So it's like, how how can you fault, you know, these guys made music that people remember for 40 years and they did it with a sine wave. That's not something to sneer at, you know? Absolutely. Um, So anyway, you know, the technology evolved and, um, and really, you know, games, became an orchestral medium. Um, and and today they very much uh, live in a, in, a, in a kind of open environment where the score can be whatever the project needs. Um, and I've always approached games um, bringing with them the wish list of things I've wanted games to do, things that annoy me when I play games. And yeah. and, and in fact, when I, I, I got together early with the, the development team at Sony, I did a game somewhat forgotten game called SOCOM 4 US Navy SEALs as part of that kind of um, that franchise. But in the process of doing that, when I got hired was immediately after Battlestar. And uh, I just sat down with the guys and I was like, I just came with a laundry list of things that annoyed me about games. How How come it's always the same music? Can it change? If you die, does it have to be the same music? Can we evolve more? Like I just said, I wanna feel like there's a little guy conducting behind me and he's watching me. And he's like shaping the, oh guys, danger, you know, and he's evolving, not like with layers cross fading up and down, but I wanted to feel like a performance. Yeah. And, you know, God bless that Sony team. Cause they just went, uh, okay, let's work on that. Well, I find out later, you know, that they went and wrote a new audio engine inspired by what we were talking about. And huh. they cut its teeth on SOCOM 4 and it's still in use now that, that and when I, I did God of War with them and, Man, it is incredible the way it worked. And I'm really proud of that collaborative nature because I'm writing music that I think is cool. But ultimately it's like, I hand this over to the coders and I'm like, it's up to you guys. When I play this game to create that feeling like there's a a conductor watching you play, you have to code the hell out of this. And I have to give you all the pieces that work. Quick end to that anecdote. In 2016, my dream literally came true when God of War was announced at Mm. a big press event at the Shrine Theater. The the game was announced by me walking out in front of a full orchestra and um, the director of the game, Corey, is playing a build of the game that's been designed for this presentation. He's playing in real time. And Jeff, I kid you not, there I am in front of the orchestra watching him play and my arms are moving. And it's like, I know the basic beats of where the story's gonna go, but he's playing the game while I'm conducting the orchestra. And the best thing is, I, I feel like, not only did we get to announce the game by playing my theme, I mean, before the game even was announced, they heard like a three minute overture of something. Uh, but it's like, I feel like when that game came out, we, we didn't make a promise we couldn't deliver. Like the implementation, the coding, the quality of the music, everything was there that when you play God of War, it's like, it is as if, I am watching you play and shaping my performance, the orchestra's
1: performance to what you're doing.
0: So I find that incredibly inspiring. I mean, right, like-
1: (laughs) That's ballsy too, like to play the game in front of that crowd and then have you conducting in front of that crowd. You know, there's easier ways to do that.
0: Absolutely, it (laughs) totally was. And it was a testament to Corey uh, and his dedication to sort of going big And, 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 you know, to anyone following the game space God of War 2018 was a was a big deal, you know. I mean, like it it I think it'll have a big influence. And I grew up, you know, playing Mega Man and Super Mario and Zelda and Metal Gear Solid and all that stuff. But it's like, man, I kind of feel like the iteration of God of War that I got to be a part of shaping will probably join them in yeah. the pantheon of when people look back, especially at this era, at the PS4 era. Um, it'll be like it'll be one of those things that, that people will remember. And I'm, God, I'm, I'm so lucky, man, you know, that it's like to be able to to work on a project like that.
1: Well, and they're lucky to have you too. Uh, and I've seen the uh, that shrine, uh, a good buddy of mine, uh who works over with the Sony folks, uh, he was over and we were just talking about memorable music moments and things that we'd seen and, and uh, you know, concerts and things like that. And that was the first thing he, he said, look, this is the best thing I've ever seen that was music. like. And oh my he God! Pulled it up on YouTube and showed to me, and, and that was just a couple of weeks ago. Which is, uh, I had seen <laughs> before that, and so it's so funny that that yeah. uh, you, you you zeroed in on that moment. But uh, I'm at the time I said, there's easier ways to do this. You know, you you're having this guy play this video game live while this guy's conducting live because like that could go really yeah. wonky, you know. Like, a, uh, so I, I, I admired it and I enjoyed it, and uh, you guys had some tubin.
0: Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of uh, deep male vocals. It's not Tuvan, but I got Icelandic singers singing in this ridiculously low register to kind of represent uh, Kratos. I mean, I just wanted something that was really masculine and powerful, and he got this very simple theme. And the story is about his deceased wife, and he takes her ashes with his son, with whom he has conflict, to fulfill her wishes, to scatter her ashes at the highest peak in all the realms. That's the plot of the game. And that theme for the, 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 the boy's mother, you know, it's evocative and beautiful. And God, even, it's funny, just the lasting potential legacy of these things. One of my assistants who is working with me on some projects just texted me out of the blue. He's like, it, the track on the album is called Memories of Mother. And he's like, where did that, where did that come from? You know, I'm just listening to this and it's like, and, and it's just neat to think like, man, that was, that came from the inspiration of that story that, Corey made, God of War, like that, that even though it was this big event, that like the emotional theme in that game is still something that like young composers listen to and text me and go like, I gotta, I gotta ask you, how'd you do that? You know? So it's neat. I mean, it's like, I'm, there are rare circumstances where everything aligns and you have the right creative partner, the right IP, and it's presented to the audience in the right way it really takes all i mean and the fourth one is like and you are inspired and do something that's good when all four of those things align which is almost never right. uh you get something that is really special and that's why you know that's why i do what i do is for you're rolling the dice every time am i going to get those four things
1: yeah yeah absolutely so, so well said and, and you know one of the things that you think about uh is the way that uh music arrives to us uh and then the, we hear it and, and feel it. But then that changes over time. And I'm wondering, you know, is there anything that you've done in the past, any pieces that you've done or, or projects that you worked on where they come to you differently now? You hear something you didn't hear then or you, you, you see something in your work that you maybe didn't even recognize at the time that you can perceive now?
0: It's an interesting question. And I would assume that the answer is that Hey, I have a new perspective on these things, and I and I hear you know musical things that I didn't, and that's not my experience. Surprisingly, I've actually not thought about this, so this is coming to me in a moment of vulnerability. So. But uh, what has been coming to me recently? I've been going back and working on some old uh, Battlestar Galactica related uh, projects for for some stuff that's coming up that I think fans will like. But in listening to this old material, what Bloods back to me is not a new perspective on what I was doing creatively, but, but personal memories. It's like, oh my God, what a defining part of my life that gig was. But anything I'm working on, it like stamps itself. I, and suddenly it's like where I was living, the relationships that I was in and all the flood of emotion that comes with that. And it's like so personal that part of me is like, it's almost like I'm, I'm more detached from like, is this good art or not? Like, I don't even know. Because it's like, for everybody else, it's attached to the show and maybe their experiences watching the show. But I've, I found that that's, it's almost like when this is all said and done and I die, it's like my music is gonna be like my diary in a weird way. Even though it's inspired by all these stories written by writers and their studio notes, but it's like, yeah, man, like we put it all together and it's like, there is a piece of me that is imprinted there. And with Battlestar Galactica, it's, it's naivete and passion and fire and sacrifice. I gave my 20s to Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go out. I didn't propose to my girlfriend until it was done. I mean, it was like, that was my 20s. And I think you can hear that in that music. Um, there's a raw nerve there. That I couldn't recreate now.
1: Yeah, you know, no, it's fascinating, and that's that's art. That's the definition of art, in a way. You know, is that yeah. is the uh, is is that expression meeting the moment uh, uh, that you're in? We live in an era, especially now with the pandemic, where isolation is uh, and and separation are not only uh, part of our life; they're almost mandatory. Like you know, um, yeah, uh, collaboration is is a big part of what you do uh, and and uh, orchestral music by definition is collaborative. Um, is that a challenge for you? You know, this digital era, do you find yourself secluded when you don't want to be or has it been, or do the technological tools help you bridge that in a way that hasn't really hurt your work?
0: It's definitely changed the dynamic. Um, I will say that my job historically has been giving me the tools to account for this. I mean, the tech, I'm always been on sort of the relative cutting edge of what the technology can allow in terms of recording music, um, setting up musicians that I work with to be able to record in their own spaces if they have to. And so it was not a huge transition for me on a technical level. The biggest difference is filmmakers like to meet in person and I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and I couldn't conduct orchestras, which was very sad. I mean, I really was so grateful that so much of the last 15 years of my life, I got to do that. I mean, I was greedy for it because I won't get to do it again for a while. That, that, that's, that's sad, but I still got to write orchestral music. Um, we were recording with orchestras around the world. Um, and uh, I'm just having to do what you and I are doing now. I'm basically listening on Zoom. Technology is a little better, but it's the same thing. I'm giving notes over the internet and letting artists um, do their thing and someone else is conducting. And you know what, Jeff? It's been fine. Yeah. Um, the, you know, There are great conductors out there. I love doing it, but I'm not the best in the world. Like somebody else, if you get the right person, they do a great job. Um, so really, the pandemic has affected me Far more personally than professionally, um, and making that adjustment that we've all had to make, and and recalibrating, you know, your psyche to account for this lack of personal interaction and lack of physical interaction that you just take for granted, you know. And I'm not going to lie; it's been really hard. And I'm, you know, in a lot of ways, it's um, I'm more exhausted than I thought I would be at this point you know like i'm definitely ready for it to be done
1: sure get so much energy from people that being removed from that energy uh i find myself uh it's i'm sort of like a compass uh, looking for north you know sometimes you know like
0: uh absolutely and do you ever find yourself i mean i find myself feeling like like it's sort of like i wished i had more creative energy i wish i had more energy and then it's sort of like i'm getting stuff done but it's like god i just I used to love this, right? Why is this such a chore? And it's like, well, there is a reason. Yeah. There's a whole other part of your life that is not being exercised. That's right. And it used to be that like, um, when I'm in the studio, it's offset by time that I would spend outside the studio. And once that is sort of severely imbalanced, I have found that it is um, affecting my time in the studio. So I have been taking... You know, efforts to 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 combat that, but and, and mitigate it. But man, is you can't you can't really replicate it. We're not designed to function this way. We really aren't. No,
1: we really aren't. And uh, and it feels like this moment in time. There's almost it's it's almost perverse because you know if you look at what we've gone through as a society, uh, you know the the polarized politics uh, that became so venomous, and then uh, you know. Yeah. You look at the Black Lives Matter movement and all the different challenges. This is a time when we should be going around and making sure that we know our neighbors. Like I want I, I, yeah. to go knock on doors. Like I feel ashamed of myself that I have a neighbor who I don't know, but I can't do that. Like it's it's it, it feels like a, the challenges that yeah. we have are, are particularly perverse to me. And uh, it's a it's around. a great
0: it's a great perspective on part of the reason it's been you know so challenging and 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 in many ways as an artist it is i i have put that energy into creating art i have been relatively if not basically completely dormant on social media a place i used to spend a lot of time um partly because i that's just where my brain went i mean i kind of went into creation mode and i i do feel like you know i've I've actually had maybe the most productive year of my life i am i am gearing up to release a tidal wave of material, both scores for other people and projects of my own that I think fans are gonna really respond to. And it, I kind of went into this headspace where it's like, my contribution right now will be to give you things to do when you're out in the world. But right now I have to put my shields up and I'm, I'm just gonna make stuff right now. Yeah. I don't have the capacity to reach out, you know?
1: Yeah, tuned out, you tuned out, literally.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, and uh, and uh, it'll be fun to release all the tunes, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be, um, it's it's an incredibly historically unprecedented time, and in a weird way, it's like, I'm grateful, I'm learning things a lot about, you know, what we value, and what we probably don't need to value, and, you know, even about my own time, you know, like, yeah. uh, it definitely, uh, has given me more security in in setting my own boundaries, you know what I mean. And so as the pandemic starts to loosen up, there's definitely places where it's like, no, I'm not going to drive across town for that, you know. Right. Like let's 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 be careful, you know.
1: You know what I miss? I miss jukeboxes. Really? I miss going to a bar and going up and putting money in a jukebox and making people listen to my music and having them walk over and say,
3: damn,
1: you play good music. Like That's more, <laughs> one of my favorite interactions in, in life. And I did it awesome. uh, three days ago for the first time in like wow. a year and a half. and we Went in and I played like four songs and sure enough, someone came over and said, who is this? I'm like, oh, Warren Zevon, Carmelita, you know? Uh, nice. And uh, it, it's, i do not not sure why that satisfies me so much. Uh, one thing- Yeah, I, 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 I
0: definitely to, miss those kind of interactions with random strangers that you then find, finding a bond with random strangers, especially over things we love, art and music. Like that's just the best. I miss that
1: for sure. For sure. Like, and you put Marvin Gaye on and people walk over and they feel like, hey, what's going on? I haven't heard this song in a long time. You know, like yeah, like this is the song we need to hear right now. You know, like it's my jukebox prescription. Uh, Nice. For you, you know, uh, every part of our life and as you've been discussing, every part of our life, there's a new challenge and there's a new opportunity, um, professionally, f- personally, what have you. Uh, what's one of the challenges that you're working on? What do you find is a challenge for you now, besides the, the, the situation of the world, but maybe with your craft? Is there anything?
0: God, that- I mean, I was about to say like, to even ask me that and be like, aside from the like, situation <laughs> of the pandemic, uh, I mean, because it's so impossible to separate that. Um, yeah. Um, but I will try because I think we've talked about that enough. Um, and everything we talked about is the huge challenge to overcome. Um, for me, I think that uh, I think the biggest challenge for me to overcome is in listening to the little voice inside me that says, there's other things you want to do. And if you don't start doing them, you're going to run out of time. Tick, tick, tick. And it's like the siren song of being established in my first medium of choice. Like, I love writing music for people. But I also realized like, there's so many other things I love to do. There's so many other art forms I love to explore. There's so many other ways of expressing music and narrative. Um, and that's part of what I've been exploring. And, and in many ways, it's almost like, God, it's like, it you know, when new opportunities come up for scoring and it's like, it, I could totally just do that. And, and there are some things that I've turned down because it's like, now's not the time for that. I, I need to make some space in my creative life. Like I could be, if I could be fully happy, just scoring music for other people for my, the rest of my life. And it's like, well, I can just kick back. And I feel like I've got a reputation enough. I don't have to shop for gigs. Like people are going to call me, but there's other things I want to do. and. Um, And I've been doing some of those things and moving toward that. And I, that is a challenge. The challenge is not in diving into like new mediums and new art forms and meeting new people and introducing yourself as a new thing. The challenge is just getting up in the morning and going like, do the new thing. Don't just go, don't just go to the studio and start writing more film music because you totally could do that today. Set aside four hours and like, do this. And uh, you know, that kind of, that that's been a, a a challenge for me, but I've been like I've been really really good about it, and and I you know I do think that I'm gonna start doing some things out there that are that are different, and um that's really exciting to me, like that you know like that that ultimately is what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning.
1: Yeah, well that's fantastic to hear. You know I, I I have a similar experience, but mine is like driven by you know journalism has changed a lot since. Uh...
3: Since I <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> and uh uh you know but one of the things i'm doing now is writing fiction for the first time and and uh uh it's a it's a fascinating challenge but it's very invigorating but it is easier to go to what you know it's easier to kind of uh i'll go work instead of go create uh you know uh that that idea of I like, can yeah. just doing what i do uh but that's it's, the, it's
0: very much the same thing and and all the little inner voices that are like people are going to think you're stupid people aren't going to like this but then you're like but but i like this right shut up little voice shut up this is exactly. i'm enjoying this you know yeah. um so yeah it's uh it's definitely overcoming sort of your own impulse to be your 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 own worst enemy yeah
1: and and then this is another goofy question but if you if you look back uh on all the films and, and TV shows that you grew up with that we grew up with and, and ones before that, that you've gone back to. Uh, and this isn't to criticize any one of them, but is there one that you like, I would have liked to have done that. Like, uh, I would have loved to have a chance to do that or have my name on that. Uh, oh
0: man, that's a tricky one because it's like, it, it is impossible to kind of separate how much I loved something and would have wanted to be a part of it with, but like, the part of the reason I love it is yeah. that it's like it's, so perfect. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah. in many ways, it's it, 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 it's honestly, Jeff, almost impossible to answer because part of it is like the twist that I put in it in is like, I take my love for those things and spin them into like what I consider like very thinly veiled love letters. You know, yeah. like, like for me, one of those projects that just changed my world was the 1982 Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. If I had to pick like, if I had to pick one score, it might be that one. That's my Tell favorite. That. Tell me about that. Story. Oh my god! It it is. Um, there's so much passion in it, so much innovation, so much like luscious melody, and extreme power. And yeah. if you think about it, like, what have I? What do I try to put in everything that I do? I mean, it uh, like. God of War and Masters of the Universe are like very thinly veiled love letters to yeah. what Basil Polidorus did in that score. Um, that whole movie was just like greater than the sum of its parts. It was magic. Every single person arguably bringing something, you know, greater than they would ever bring to anything else, arguably. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like, and it created this whirlwind of, I, I just think, brilliance that is overshadowed by the shit-tastic sequel and even more <laughs> the the dvd library of shitty fantasy films that it spawned that it just gets lumped with them and it's yes. like no 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 this is like one of the great even though it came out in 82 it's one of the great 70s auteur films that's right you know what i, I mean I, it's like a, it is john Milius like blasted all over the screen with one of the greatest scores ever i mean it's like I love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my answer is it's like, well, I wouldn't touch Conan the Barbarian. I wouldn't dare, but you give me Masters of the Universe and Kevin Smith, I'll, I get to play around with that language yeah. in a just shameless way. You know, yeah. And as I mentioned with Dark Void and Elmer Bernstein's Heavy Metal, like I wouldn't touch Heavy Metal, the original film, but it's like, you give me a, a, a video game about a guy in a rocket pack flying around in an alternate dimension, Dude, I'm going to get to play around with the things in Tarna's theme that I loved. Yes, so, in I many see. ways, I can't answer your question. And on the other way, I answer your question every time I sit down in my studio.
1: Oh, that's good. That's really good. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Now, unless you can tell us what that Battlestar thing is. Now, what's that? You said that's a secret. Oh, oh. Um, uh, when is this airing? <laughs> <laughs> Probably tomorrow.
0: <laughs> oh, this is. I'll long. tell you what, I'll, I will <laughs> allude to it um one of the things that fans have uh tagged me at a lot over the years is the lack of my Battlestar Galactica scores on Spotify and Mm -hmm. I always say just hang in there hang in there oh that's all I'm gonna say but uh yeah you can probably piece that together
1: nice that sounds nice and I I love that we maintain the spoiler we didn't tell people what the song is or what dude
0: you know there's this whole thing now with spoiler culture where it's like it's like after 48 hours people are just like what's your problem we're going to talk about the ending of WandaVision or Mandalorian like you're the loser and it's like I'm the loser with a job and a kid like I I can't possibly keep up but but that's why I'm like for me even when I'm speaking at Comic-Con or whatever 10 years plus after the end of Battlestar I do not spoil a thing sure I really don't because it's like if you have managed to make it this far I don't want you sitting in here listening to me ruin that for you You know, it's like, why spoil anything that's so amazing. Like you have that, you have that experience. uh, And, you know, it's just one of those things like read the room. Like, has everybody seen it? Let's talk about it. I love talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm weird like that.
1: Well, no, because you, you respect the integrity of the work and you want it to be intact for the next person. Like you don't feel a need to say, I consumed this. Therefore it's over. Yours is, oh, you haven't read that yet. Uh, How lucky you are to experience for the first time. Like I did.
0: I, yes, and I think that that perspective is probably born from being someone who creates things. So I feel this extra sense of like, I right. need that for, for all of you to, I, I worked so hard on that reveal that you just spoiled. You know right. what I mean? Like like I worked on that for a week and you just kind of like just said it,
3: yeah. you know? Yeah. So
0: exactly. I, it, it, it is a perspective that maybe, um, just sort of like fans that consume stuff don't stop and think about like you know and they're and and they're driven by excitement. It is incredibly exciting when stuff like that happens. You want to talk about it, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll uh, you know, dude, I won't spoil Battlestar in interviews in 50 years if I'm yeah. around here when I'm 90. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's like Rosebud. Like you just, just don't do it. Yeah. Just, yeah, just totally. You just don't do it. Um, and then what music are are you consuming? Is there any music that's uh, an album that uh, you've listened to lately that's new to you or uh, something that you really kind of uh, getting a good vibe off of? I know it's you're busy, so that. I know it's tough.
0: Well, but the, you know what? The, the one thing that affected me in the pandemic more than anything else is I realized I listen to new music when I'm in the car and yeah. I'm in the car when I'm driving to meetings that I yeah. don't have anymore. That's why like can you come in and take a meeting on this Netflix show? And it's like, it's in Burbank. You want to meet at three? I have three hours in the car today. Yeah. You enjoy like finding new music. And I'm, I usually am like listening for things that are kind of in the vein of, of where I'm, uh, you know, where I'm where I'm going. I was listening, uh, you know, a year ago, I was sort of like, as I was digging into, um, God of War got me into a lot of like, like <laughs> Nordic metal and like, Icelandic metal and I found a bunch of these really great bands um and also so. it's just like really loud music in the car is great I love it you know what I mean yeah. um so uh stuff like that I, I listen to a lot of stuff that's like I mean you know I mentioned uh Queen Oingo Boingo and and Pink Floyd early but I mean also like I listen to a lot of System of a Down like and 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 um even sort of like I mean I guess I listen to a lot of metal now that I think about it it's like Some of the newer bands like, you know, like fever three, 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 which I I really like. And, and there, there are people, in in all these bands that I, some of them I know and some of them I chat with and I'm, they turn me on to people. And to me, it's such an escape. Cause it's just super loud, but also when it's harmonically interesting, when it's lyrically interesting, when there's good singers, it's like, I totally get what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like that goes back to Conan the barbarian to me that it's like epic drums and a big melody. Like, like, I didn't listen to metal in the 80s, but if I had, I would have realized like, oh, that's like Basil Polidorets' score. It's the same thing.
1: Yeah, and we listen Do you to the I mean? of the women.
0: Like, <laughs> so one of the ways I got into metal, it's totally, by the way, excellent quote. One okay. of the ways I got into metal was I became friends with um, Scott Ian from Anthrax. Met him socially. Yeah. So we're chatting. And he this was during the days of Battlestar. And he goes, he was like, man, I love those drums, man. I can tell, I can tell you listen to Sepultura. And I was like, blink, blink, what? So wow. I go and check out Sepultura, their their early stuff from the early nineties. And I'm like, it, they're a Brazilian metal band that has all these Brazilian drums. And I was realizing like, oh my God, this is Battlestar Galactica with drop tuned bass and guitars. Then the next time I saw Scott, I was like, you're right. I love Sepultura. But you know what I'm saying? That like he heard a thing in my score and drove me, towards this other kind of music that is on the surface completely different. And I just, I loved that. I mean, it's just part of those interactions with people that we were getting at, you know, around the jukebox where you're like, I would never, ever, ever have headed that direction until somebody that I met who knows that world goes, hey, you know, here and that, let me just make that connection for you.
1: You know what I mean? Oh, it's the best. It's
0: awesome. It's, it's awesome, you know? And, and then, and of course that bleeds over into my job when Godzilla, King of the Monsters came up and I was like, I just called up my friend, Serge from System of a Down. And I was like, do you want to cover Blue Oyster Cult for this movie? Like, let's just do it and not tell them. And I'll play it for them on the last day of Q reviews. And we made a demo and just did it. And as uh, Michael Doherty was like, awesome, all the cues are approved and the execs are getting up to leave. And I go, hang on, I got one more thing to play for you. I got an idea for the end credits, and I kid you not, Jeff. I hit play and you see the, the Pro Tools line starts moving toward the downbeat. Michael's sitting there in total silence, and he looks at me and he goes, Blue Oyster Cult. Ouch. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, it's like the stars aligned. Then what happens? The movie comes out. Who calls me? Buck Dharma, the lead singer guitarist <laughs> from Blue Oyster Cult. I'm on the phone with the guy who wrote Don't Fear the Reaper. Now we're collaborating on a project, on a couple of projects. So it's like just a weird synergy with which people go, you're not from my musical world, but, but I like that. Or, or yeah. you did something with my music I wasn't expecting. Like, let's get together and do stuff. So yeah, I do listen to a lot of metal and stuff cause it's sort of, it, it's something I'm passionate about. And I just like, there's a connection there between the film music that I write and that musical world that I realize is worth exploring
1: heavy metal uh, we got you got Bloister Colt on Speed Dial you know we're just talking about heavy metal we got to get those guys dude
0: totally and uh veteran yeah, of the sweet. psychic wars that was the first time that their tune in the heavy metal the movie was the first time i heard them for sure yeah you know given my age i mean it's like yeah, uh, yeah man no they they're they're amazing i mean they they're they're great and 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 buck is awesome and uh yeah you know so i was talking about different things that I'm doing these days and I'm just going to leave all that last couple of minutes as a hint as to some of the things I've been doing over the last couple of years
1: all right all right well I see what you're doing there that's pretty cool that's pretty cool well it's a um, boy Bear, I could talk to you for days and days I just love the stuff that you do and I love the way you approach things and it's just such a treat to have you on the show man I really really appreciate you coming on
0: well thanks man I just appreciate your insight into the way music connects to narrative I mean we didn't even talk about how we met when you did that screening of Wally and my wife, Rhea Yarbrough, and I- Oh my God. Sang the, 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 the Peter Gabriel song and brought Maybe. my electric piano over. Cause you're like, right. you you wanted, uh, you recognized the value that the song had to the movie and our emotional connection to it. And I mean, we kept talking about, you know, God of War with that huge orchestra, but you did the same thing, yeah. you know, like we want to open this event with, with this, we want to have this music at this event. So, uh, man, I just appreciate that. Like, just as someone who, who traffics in narrative and writers and actors and story that you realize like there's this whole other component that is crucial to how we connect with these stories.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, I, I had the, the great thrill to do uh, some film festivals when uh, I was at the LA Times for Hero Complex and then uh, when I went to EW I did it for the Cape Town Festival and we had some great guests uh, uh, and we screened some great movies. I mean, we had Kurt Russell come out for Escape from New York. Leonard Nimoy, oh, the late great boy yeah. came out. Uh, uh, just, I mean, Ken Feige came and uh, and and having what you guys did, uh, which was just lovely. Uh, the music from Wally e and, and all the Pixar films. I mean, you, you, can't really, uh, you can't really consider the films without the music. I mean, it, it's, Not actually, at all. it's like up, you know, I mean my god you know yeah uh, but that was so much fun and, and we did others uh, you know we had somebody come out and sing the firefly theme you know uh, acoustic when we did a screening of serenity and people went nuts like live yeah. music in the movie theater people aren't ready for it uh yeah you give it to them and they just go crazy
0: yeah well that's a that's a true insight into like music's capacity especially when you're talking about screening something that's already known and has a following it music's capacity to trigger those good feelings that nostalgia it's like it is so powerful you know i mean i always say that like hey man you can shut your eyes but you can't shut your ears you know that music just bypasses all your defenses and it's like you will feel this if you can hear this you know you're in that theater and it's like the ability to trigger those emotions um it's so wonderful as an artist to play around with that, but to just to recognize, you know, as a storyteller, that it's like, man, I'm gonna play that song. I'm gonna play the theme from Firefly here. The effect that that will have,
1: yeah, it's profound, you know? Yeah. yeah, and those cues stay with us. Like whenever I hear the fanfare that for 20th Century Fox, yes, I immediately go back to Star Wars. Like I, I, I feel like I'm about to watch Star Wars on a movie screen, no matter how many times I hear it or what context I hear, it, because that was the signature sound for me,
0: you know? It was the doorbell that let you into the house, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's um, th- that kind of Pavlovian response is something that, um, you know, that, that's what that's into, uh, to quickly get to the essence of how I do my job. It's like, I draw upon those things. I'm, I'm a consumer of media like everybody else. So I know all these sounds have certain, for most people in the audience, just instant connection baggage sometimes. like, And you're just drawing from all these colors because you know, like, man, I mean, you know, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's like, for people that know the old Ifakube theme, this is gonna be a huge emotional impact to use these notes here, you know? And and just being able to play around with that stuff. It's wonderful. I, I love it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I always thought that maybe, do you think that the Jaws theme, is that, is there anything else that people can recognize in two notes? Uh, two notes? Or how many notes is that?
0: Uh, no, it's well done. It's two. It is a repetition of two notes, but you only need to do two of them.
1: I mean, everybody go, knows what dunna, that is. Dunna. Every everybody's yeah. in knows swimming pool. I,
0: anyway. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, it's a fun challenge to think if there's anything that is mem as memorable in in two and or or you know even one. And I think the answer is probably not. I mean, it really. Um, was incredibly clever. The next best thing is like five notes. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. yeah. yeah. You know, and the famous story of, you know, Williams said he wrote like 200 of them or something. And they just sat at the piano. And I mean, it was not the divine inspiration you think it is, wow. which of course it never is. It's always yeah. just like a workman like, ah, you know one yeah. of my favorite pieces of probably fiction although it might not have been is an Amadeus when Salieri looks at the manuscripts and he says, to, the, to his his wife, I sorry, I said to bring his sketches, not the manuscripts. And she goes, well, those, those are the sketches. Yeah. And he's like, this, he wrote it down just like this. And she's like, well, yeah, isn't basically, isn't that how you do it? And it just pushes in on his face, as an artist, I'm just feeling the dagger myself, like it's never like that. It's yeah. never like that. You have to write it 50,000 times to craft the, there, there's the good one.
1: Well, there it is.
0: Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too many otherwise notes. it's it's too many notes just <laughs> get rid of a few
1: well fantastic bear well thank you so much unless you have a theme song for a podcast i think we're gonna
0: not at the know. moment but uh, give me a little time you know
1: <laughs> well it's always a treat to talk to you and uh uh i hope your uh, your family's doing well and that uh, uh, you guys are staying healthy and and i can tell that you're staying happy uh and that's a big nice. challenge these days so it is indeed. You, you thanks you for the join us here again, especially after some of these upcoming projects. We want to talk to you about those as well.
0: Sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, nerd out about all my favorite things.
1: Always. All right. Thanks again, Bear.
2: Well, thank you so much. That was Bear McCreary. And I think our audience can agree that just, wow, what a man who's seen so much and has such a kind soul and (laughs) wants to impart his knowledge. So
1: yeah he's just a very generous soul you know um you can tell he loves what he does and uh and you can hear it you know you can really hear it and and that's both true when he talks and when he when he plays and and uh when he gets in front of an audience and and conducts which i've seen as well and uh it seems really a lot of fun for him i love talking about music too because you know i um for the listeners that don't know my my journalism career like at the LA times for instance, I was there for like 21 years and for like seven years, I did crime and government I covered, um, and then for like seven years I covered music like going on tour with rock bands, uh, going to the Grammys uh, and uh, interviewing music stars one-on-one. And then for seven years I did film, TV and and hero complex you know, uh, with the, the genre stuff. But that seven years covering music uh, was really, for me, like really, really super special, uh, getting to interview people that I had admired as, as a kid and, and hearing all this great music and going on tour with bands, going places you know around the world um, to see them play live. Uh, for anybody that loves music, I mean, that's just, I had the greatest job in, 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 in America, I think. I really, really felt that way. Um, so I love talking about music uh, especially. That's always fun because I think the best Um, people ask me if you, if I enjoy interviewing movie stars better or directors or musicians. And I usually say musicians because the best musicians are themselves and the best actors aren't, you know, Hmm. um, like, you know, Robert De Niro is a mystery to me, but, uh, you know, we all know who Eminem is, We know, who Ice Cube is, We know, who Neil Young is just from listening to them. Um,
2: have there been any musicians that you've profiled that, like you said, um, surprise you by the extent to which they are themselves like you meet them and you're like huh that's um, on brand you are you are you are the artist that is exactly what I thought you would be like
1: yeah there was there's been a few that are very very on brand as you say and that's a great way to put it um, and then a few that surprised me be uh, I remember the first interview I did on that job uh, with someone that was in uh, of, of Sort of a famous stature, and it was in person, face to face. The first one was Michael Stipe from REM, mm-hmm. and I had to interview him on stage uh, in front of like 300 people. They were filming a TV show. Um, they were doing like a, a, they were playing a band, they are performing as themselves in a club, but it was for a, a, a scene in a um, at the prime time show, and uh, and I, I thought Michael Stipe. I was really nervous because he seems so intellectual, so s- cerebral, so. Such an artiste that I was afraid he'd be really severe. And the first thing he said to me is, Oh, wow, you're really tall. And, uh, and I had to do the interview in front of the audience because they didn't have time to set up differently and stuff. So I had to go up and stand in front of these people. And they're all just staring, they're all extras, like 300 of them staring at me. So it was very awkward. But when he said that, I just started laughing. I said, Well, you know, thanks. I've been working on that. And it was such a fun, smooth, I, I don't think he did it because I was nervous, but uh, it sure had the effect of, of making me relax. And uh, so that was one where it was not what I expected. The person that was is always exactly what I expected is Neil Young. I've interviewed oh, Neil yes. a few times. The the first time I talked to him one on one was at a uh, it was poolside. I think it was at the Standard in Los Angeles, and he was wearing um, uh, flip. Uh, he was wearing uh, sandals with black socks. And like uh, like a fishing cap, and you, know, uh, you know, and sitting by the pool, uh, complaining about the government. And I was like, "This is exactly what I expected." Yeah. <laughs> I said to him, um, I, "I made the mistake of trying to ask something that was kind of a a little maybe a, a softball question." <laughs> uh, I said, uh, "You know, when you think back about Woodstock, and you." You look at it from the, the point of view of uh, all, all these years that have passed, what do you see now? And he just, he just, he spit the answer at me. He was so uh, He was like, ah, uh, Like he, he really, he could not have been more bitter about the topic. He said, we thought we started a movement. All we did was identify a marketplace. Oh, <laughs> he was yeah. so upset about it. I'm like, wow, okay, let's talk about the new music. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's very much what you would expect as someone who's uh, uh, stridently passionate about creativity, music, and uh, the way that he sees the world, you know, and uninterested and, and scathing if, if uh, you go off topic to the point of boring him. But if you talk about like model railroads, that's great. He loves that. Oh. He loves music. He loves the environment uh he loves pearl jam he loves <laughs> a lot of things um but uh, he's definitely not going to be shy you know he's
2: yeah i customary. love the detail that he had socks and sandals on i think that is important to all the dads in the audience and all the dads listening i think neil young is a hero for that
1: <laughs> absolutely you know and, and i grew up you know in south florida where uh, a, a significant percentage of the population wears black socks with sandals and sits on the 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 Uh, by the pool or by the the ocean and complains about the government 24 hours a day (laughs) you know like that's their uh Mm -hmm. that's their retirement uh so uh it was pretty it was that's why i think i remember that so distinctly uh and uh i another time i interviewed him uh was in columbus ohio and we ended up playing ping pong together it was one of the best ping pong games i ever had um just because it was neil young I, i didn't do that well but i just how often he play Neil Young and ping pong him and, and that it was for the move on concerts that they were doing for the 2000 election and it was uh the, the show was Pearl Jam Neil Young Peter Frampton and Death Cat for Cutie not in that mm-hmm. order playing together it's such a strange bill you know a, a unusual bill but it was really a really lot of fun um and uh that one's a whole story. I'll save that for another night, uh, another episode. But there, there's a great Eddie Vedder and I had a very romantic walk along the Columbus River. And I'll, I'll tell you that oh, story. sometime. It's very that... fun. Yes, yeah, I love Eddie. He's the best. He's he's a great guy. Um, but uh,
2: when yeah, you tell you
1: that one when you, story.
2: when you interview an artist, does that change how you receive the music? Like, I mean, we were talking about Bear. Now, do you hear like? the opening of Battlestar and you're like, bear. And I mean, it's like, do you, does that layer an emotional reception onto the music for you?
1: It sure does. It sure does you can't help it. And in fact, sometimes it's it's sad, you know, because unlike film, you know, with music, singing along with a person is a very intimate uh, interaction. You know, if you, if you go and you watch a film um, you're you're slightly removed from it, if you're especially if you're watching something like The Shining or or Gladiator, something that is like a world you don't want to be in, a world that feels like you don't exist in the spectacle of it. You get lost in the moment, but it doesn't feel like it's about you. You sing along with somebody at a concert. That's different. You have to like the person that you're singing along with, to a certain extent. Um, you certainly don't have to like the actors to watch a movie and enjoy it, but I feel like you almost have to like the musician to watch a concert and enjoy it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that might be oversimplifying, but there's been people I've interviewed that I didn't have a great reaction to, and it made it hard to enjoy their music later. Or oh, okay. people I, I, you know, um, yeah, you know, the, the, quite honestly, like, uh, yeah. And then some people that whose music I didn't love, but they were so wonderful that now I can't. Uh, this happened, Sammy Hagar, the nicest guy in the world. Sammy Hagar is the nicest guy in the world. Uh, I, 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 I'm not anti Sammy Hagar, and I'm not anti Van Halen certainly, and but Van Hagar wasn't maybe the music that I would turn up when it came on the radio. It's just not my, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, whatever. I did go see the tour back then. Um, Sammy Hagar comes on the radio in my car no one's changing the dot. I gotta listen to I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. we gotta listen to Sammy, you know? Cause, cause he was so damn nice to me, like, and, and so wonderful and generous that I like the guy. Um, and that's just really funny, you know? Uh, I like him so much more. I didn't really like Mick Jagger. Does it affect the Stones song? Some of them, you know? Like, yeah, like I'm a little less patient with the Stones than I used to be, you know? Uh, just, you know. But, you know, maybe he doesn't like to read my stories either.
2: Mm. Well, I wasn't going to
1: ask you to name names, but <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I have nothing against Mick. He did nothing. Yeah. He did nothing wrong. He just that it's just that It's just I just feel slightly removed from him. I, I I've, it changes things. It changes, you know. The big one that changed for me is Springsteen, and, and and not it didn't make Springsteen. I still love Springsteen's music, and I'm a big Springsteen fan. But just you know, you get to know somebody, and it fills in blanks a little bit, and, and there's a little less mystery there. You know and and so if it does affect the way that you perceive them um Yeah,
2: yeah i mean yeah i had i had friends in literary theory classes in college who were very morally and emotionally opposed to taking the class where you discuss like how is this sentence constructed what makes it good you know how does the language work how do we quantify or qualify beautiful language and they were like I don't want to ruin my love of literature or that was their yeah. fear. I I didn't have that fear personally, but I think it's it's very common that you don't want to overexpose yourself to the things you love for fear of making them pedestrian or mundane. So
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know we, and we live in a, an era of saturation. Oversaturation of so many things especially things that are connected to entertainment or the arts uh and this is a sl- kind of a slight tangent from what you're saying but you know um if you look at somebody like tom waits
3: uh
1: mm. who you know we know very little about tom waits compared to how long he's been famous and how many opportunities there's been for us to be enlightened he, he doesn't open up about his life he keeps his work at a distance and to maintain that art uh, mystery, that sense of mystery around it. He doesn't want you to know who he is, and and uh, you know um, that t- that removes the possibility for him to surprise. He feels, and and that's one of the reasons that he does that. And like way back when Bob Dylan, uh, he when he was doing interviews in the '60s, a lot of times he would make up his biographical information. He would like he would change it. Like he would go tour, and he you know as he's going along, he would. Alter the story of his life for the different journalists, <clears throat> which, you know, you could talk different reasons that he might do that, and different effects that that has, and, and the value of that, and whatever. That's a debate, but uh, it certainly creates a, a, a sense of enigma around him that only adds to the mystique of the music. Um, and then you compare it to somebody like, you know, actors like Tom Cruise, who, whose personal life and whose prominence and like his Tom Cruise-ness has gotten to the point where it's gotten bigger than his performances so like it's hard to watch a movie with him in it for me and not see him as Tom Cruise like it's hard for me to get lost in you know uh, Mm -hmm. in in a movie that he's in Uh, you know that's why I I admired that film Collateral so much that Michael Mann made uh, with him and Jamie, Jamie Foxx and uh, Mark Ruffalo and Jason Statham and, and Tom Cruise um so that that movie doesn't feel like Tom Cruise to me I forget that's Tom Cruise and and then so I that's one of the reasons I enjoy it so much is because his his persona has not eclipsed his performance in that
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know um and stuff and I think he's a talented guy and I like him and until recently he followed me on Twitter so I, I you know I was really happy about that but uh I'm not slamming them or anything, but I think that his his, his big challenge is mm-hmm. holding on to mystique, you know, like once you jump the couch, you know, it's it's hard to come back in a lot of ways. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was thinking of asking you about the mystique of music because in when you were talking with Barry, you talked about the jukebox and how much you loved that and how much it it occupied in your story this kind of weird fluid space between mystique and familiarity the familiarity of singing with people that you mentioned because you have on the one hand the you play the song and it comes through the ether and people don't know it and they're very curious about it so I think there's the mystique element there but then in terms of familiarity it brings you to the person who's played the song and I can only imagine if you were in an pre-COVID times in a crowded bar and you didn't know who had played the song and you had to go find somebody who knew that just sounds like it would be take the strangeness and mystique and recreate intimacy out of it
1: absolutely yeah and I that's absolutely true you know and um uh I I love doing that and it's I I there's a bar um uh in Long Beach, California, uh, that I used to go to quite a lot when I was going to bars quite a lot, uh, and uh, and when bars were quite a lot, um, and it was the, uh, the the diversity of the crowd, both in uh, their you know their cultural and uh, ethnic heritage and their um, sort of their workaday life, their everything. It was a very eclectic crowd. And I, I just loved it because it, like, it was my feeling that if you put on the right sequence of songs, that you can take the whole room up a notch, even if it's not the focus, you know, it's not a live performance, it's, just it's, it's you know, background, but it's still like bears music. It's part of the, the, uh, the presentation of the moment in time. And, you know, and to put on, you know, like uh, I think I mentioned well, I had some, I always had some solid uh, mm-hmm. starters that I would go with. You know, I, I always like doing um, Marvin Gaye. <clears throat> I always think it's good for, especially if it's a really diverse crowd, is mm-hmm. to start with what's going yeah. on, you know, because of, of the unifying message and mm-hmm. the beauty of it. And the fact that I, almost, I don't know anybody that doesn't like that song. I don't know anybody that goes to bars and drinks that doesn't like that song. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really matter your background and stuff, and even if you mm-hmm. people have a good feeling about it, you know. Um, so like that, and then I try to do some obscure stuff. Uh, I like uh, Screenwriter's Blues by Soul Coughing
3: because mm-hmm. it has like
1: a really powerful cinematic feel to it. I always go with Muddy Waters. Um, I just want to make love to you, uh, the single version, which has a really haunting harmonica in it in the middle cuts across the bar and everybody hears it and it goes on longer than you think it is um and it's also it's a very confident song which is great for a bar
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: and then i usually mix it up and go with like Carmelita by uh, Warren Zevon which is yeah you mentioned that beautiful like sad heroine song about um and but it's got such vivid imagery like a Springsteen song you know something like that and then. Um, I like kind of uh, taking expectations and taking, changing them a little bit. Like uh, there's a song, the great song "Midnight Rider" by uh, the Allman Brothers. Everybody, uh, not everybody, but a lot, quite a lot of people like that song, and, and mm-hmm. it's immediately identifiable. But Greg Allman, in his solo career in the '80s, he went back and re-recorded it and did a, a toned down, um, uh, more textured version that I. I think it's far superior my my opinion and I play that one um, and you can't tell what it is at the beginning and then when it becomes what people know they're excited oh it's Midnight Rider but it's different so then it's it's like mystique and
2: familiarity
1: it's exactly right and it it Mm -hmm. takes the expectation and twists it a little bit so it starts with wow this is interesting I don't know this oh wait I do know this but it isn't what I know but I like it and wow and so that's like best case scenarios like it's um, and then I usually don't play live tracks uh, at bars because the way the the crowd yeah. sounds begins at the end and the beginning it makes it impossible to have a segue. I really think about this stuff, uh, but there's one I really do like, and it's uh, Everlast, the former frontman of House of Pain, mm-hmm. who's a great guy, um, and he did uh, his his live version of Black Jesus. I play because it's audacious, um, and it takes uh, cultural, uh, it's, it's very, uh, bold in the way that it talks about religion and the way it mm-hmm. talks about gangs and the way it talks about, uh, race, uh, uh, and again, I'm in the, usually in this very diversified bar situation when I was playing these, so I would play that because it was so audacious, but because it's so confident and because it's also ultimately very, um, uh, unifying you know Mm -hmm. uh so it's risky but it's it's always done right and then I'll stop with this one but I'll say Aretha Franklin Chain of Fools
3: oh absolutely! everybody
1: loves Aretha's voice Mm -hmm. that song isn't the one that people usually play but then when you hear it you realize it's the one you want to hear
2: It it is yeah I remember I think it was recently I read some news article that was you know positive about Aretha Franklin but it said something about you know one of the greatest voices and i was just like found myself viscerally offended that they even qualified
1: it yeah yeah
2: <laughs> it's true. that good
1: and then um you know the the actually the song i think that i found it no matter where you play it people hear it and they'll go they'll kind of nod a little bit and then they'll look over to see if, who played it Or look over just at the speaker, just to, and say, oh, and kind of nod slightly, and then go back to their drink. And that's all you get, but that's plenty. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, that's a lot. But it's uh, the unifier, uh, Dusty Springfield, Son of a Preacher Man, like that song is just golden. There's no place you can't play that song, and people haven't, they actually have a physical reaction to it, you know? Mm -hmm. There's certain songs that just, uh, you know, kind of resonate, and it's also, I like playing songs that have some high-pitched stuff in it. You know, one of the reasons Hank Williams was so successful, uh, and he was really the, one of the first real sensations in music—people that would stop traffic. You know, we think of Elvis, but before Elvis, Hank Williams was doing that,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and he was the first country act that was known nationally. And and he and you know he, he did so many things, but he uh, he had the steel pedal guitar on 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 his uh, his hits and in a crowded in Alabama they have these where he grew up they have blood buckets they call them like uh, these old roadhouses where they play music live music blood buckets just the worst term
2: so like uh, I'm picturing that kind of that place in the Blues Brothers where they play yeah. country and western something like that
1: it'd be kind of like that exactly yeah uh, and uh, um, the, the steel pedal guitar would it's up above everything, so like no matter you know it's a bar with all the you know across the top, and uh, that was really why he was like the first big jukebox sensation is because it's it's it doesn't it carries you can hear it in a, in a in a honky tonk even if it's loud mm-hmm. uh, it cuts through. And I've always been fascinated by that moments in time when there was artists who, for technological reasons kind of were right place, right time. And, and uh, you know, and uh, for instance, uh, you know, Bing Crosby, before Bing Crosby, people sang like Al Jolson. Mammy, Mammy, I love you, Mammy. You know, they, yeah. they were singing without microphones. And so they projected, which you have to do a certain type of singing for that. But Bing Crosby, he, his great, you know, intuition is that he was, the, you know, singing into a microphone for radio, at the beginning of the radio. And that if you... Bah, 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 bah. You know, he would burble and, and croon, and people, I like to think of it as, he's the first, you know, Al Jolson, if you're listening on the radio, you would lean back.
3: <laughs> but uh, probably, yeah, you know,
1: yeah. Bing comes on the radio, you lean forward, you know, and he was the first one that made people lean forward.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know? especially in retrospect the kind of act that Al Jolson did I remember I was like oh you should listen to this song to my roommate I I was like oh I'll find it on YouTube clicked on it It turned out to be a music video and we were like yeah viscerally went back three feet like let's find a different version
1: yeah obviously
2: very talented man but obviously very uh ossified in time
1: absolutely absolutely but but even singers like caruso or it doesn't even have to be somebody uh, you know i picked him because he was you know like right before bing but Mm -hmm. you know the idea of the projected voice versus the the kind of intimate um kind of phrasing that bing did um it's just kind of it's it's interesting he was in the right place at the right time and i think you know um phil spector years later was in the Technologically, mm-hmm. he he was creating these symphonies that sounded perfect on the new radios that people had in their cars. You know that he, and and the same with the Beach Boys. You know when uh,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you heard good vibrations on the radio, it just sounded so good. You know, and it was yeah. perfect for that that era. Um, and I just think that stuff's fascinating. So, but that's I, I would say that that would be my short jukebox uh, playlist.
2: Yeah. Uh, I just want to summarize the tips that you gave, like not just the songs, but the overarching principles of, of songs that get people to come over and compliment you. I think one thing technologically you mentioned is some sort of distinctive sound. Like you mentioned the harmonica yeah. um, or, or the guitar. The um, yeah. You talked a lot about covers, a couple cover songs that, you know, will start to stir in people's brains before they know know what it is. And then you get an emotional surprise when you realize it's a familiar song. And then I think, I don't know, you mentioned a lot about like texture, like just the texture of a voice and something that's like not too muddled, but um, you mentioned a lot of like Aretha and yeah. just voices that you think of and they have a very tactile like Register the way that they live in the air and in your your nervous system.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, well said. Uh, and I, uh, I, I also want, I guess one thing too is um, callbacks. Like I, I, I like doing things that have kind of uh, set something up for expectations. Like I always like to play. Um, I got a woman by Ray Charles. You know his mm-hmm. his uh, just signature one of his signature songs. Uh, because people are so used to uh, Gold Digger by Kanye. Uh, I got a woman. Uh, and so you play, you play the Ray Charles one and at first people think it's Kanye and then, oh no, this is the original. Well, wow, you know, I haven't really listened to the original. Wow, this mm-hmm. song is pretty great. And then you get to the end of it and the next song's Gold Digger oh. because, <laughs> and then everybody's expecting it. And, but they're not expecting it. They're like, oh wow. And then you get to hear how the songs are different. And how like in the Ray song, he's saying how great this woman is as opposed to, mm-hmm. and that she gives him money. And then in the song, yeah. he's taken it and, and flipped it around, and uh, it has a very different connotation. But, you know, stuff like that, or, um, you know, playing songs that people think they know what it is and it turns into something else. For instance, you know, like uh, California Love by Dre and Tupac. Um, the music of that is, it, it taken directly from a Joe Cocker song mm-hmm. that starts off exactly the same. So you play the Joe Cocker song and, and people are like, hey, it's Tupac. And then, oh, no, what is it? Wow. Too, they took this whole thing. And then and then you play it after that. So mm-hmm. as you can see, this is what I spend my time thinking about for years and years and years with what to do with the jukebox. So,
2: No, I think it's a great <laughs> skill to have. I mean, now we have Spotify hopefully we should be able to have like house parties and dinner parties again so yeah just do you have a spotify that you would be comfortable sharing (laughs) that people could follow you because i feel like lots of people will be listening and just like jeff knows how to pick songs i want i want to get attention at the jukebox like jeff
1: (laughs) that sounds great you know i i will by the time this uh this reaches (laughs) our our listenership i will have one ready to go Okay. I'm I'm flattered by the interest.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. And then we could use the, the concept of callbacks that you talked about and kind of familiar sounds, whether it's like melodies or instruments or things that I mentioned have texture. And I was wondering if we could discuss some of Bear's work, because when you think of the properties that he's done, lots of them are in far flung space age you know settings and yet when you have stuff like Battlestar Galactica the soundtrack is so acoustic and so based in traditional music he was talking about the the taiko drums from Japan and then in the cover song that plays a pivotal role that we're not gonna spoil uh, the (laughs) sitar the sitar plays a huge role so I mean, even when you're in a completely different galaxy, it's interesting that Bear's work and I think a lot of sci-fi soundtracks will revert back to traditional instrumentation.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. You're right, Yeah, you because know, you would think it, that uh, everything would sound like Daft Punk, you know, yeah. like everything would get more and more uh, what, for like a better term, we think of as futuristic or what we think of as, as technologically you know, um, milled but uh, you know, Battlestar, the, you know, there was such um, underpinnings of prophecy, and mm-hmm. and you know, Battlestar of course has a, a lot of the Egyptian um, imagery that you know Glenn Larson put in the original that uh, you know that uh, gives it a sort of sense of um, futuristic technology paired with um, things of antiquity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, anthropological. Uh, resonance that the that these things have, uh, and and that's a lot of fun. You know, it's, it can be anachronistic, but people really like that. I mean, like, like with Star Wars, there's that there's you know the expectation is oh there's spaceships it's in the future but first thing you see on the screen is a long time ago. Like what? Well, yeah. Wait, you know? So like people again that makes you lean forward a little bit. Like oh I'm going to have to pay attention here. I thought I knew what this was. This is a little different. Um, and with science fiction, I think. You know what, Bear's music with Battlestar got to, and some of the other ones that he's done as well, um, gets to the primal uh, power of things that last forever, or things that are eternal uh, in their in their uh, their in- impact. I mean, things that are cosmic. You know, for lack yeah. of a better term.
2: I was, I was looking up the theme, I think I mentioned this to you, that the theme for Battlestar incorporates chants from the Rig Vedas, um, which is, you know, as ancient and as powerful yeah. as and reverent as you can get. Um, I think same with Ghost in the Shell, I think it's the title theme is like an old Bulgarian chant about like the seasons and, you know, for a, a, a drama anime about cyborgs, it's just places yeah. it in a kind of timeless space it's true and and it's i kind of, of like scary that. to be in too but yeah. thrilling.
1: because it feels like the stakes are high you mm-hmm. know like it feels like this is big important portentous you know there's there's more here it's not uh these aren't minor or frivolous things you know these are things that are uh kind of um, existential um but I, yeah, and I think people like that. I like the, and the anachronistic stuff, and when it's when it has that human heart beating in it. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, you know one of the great challenges of the modern filmmaking era with CG technology and stuff is to make things feel real and feel human, feel tactile, feel like they have weight that exists in the universe mm-hmm. that the audience can relate to, as opposed to sort of that flimsy, glossy. Um, you know uh
3: people call video yeah.
1: game is a criticism but video games don't do that like anymore but but like when people say this movie looks like a video game it's a criticism um, yeah. But video games don't look like their criticism you know uh, but it's because yeah. of that, that hollow yeah it's
2: funny you mentioned daft punk because i know i remember reading about the soundtrack they did for tron legacy that yeah. they were approached for the project like we want to have a real techno influence, futuristic, like callback to the Wendy Carlos Tron soundtrack. And they, they toyed with that for a while. And then they went back to Disney and they were like, we want to add an orchestra. We want to add traditional instruments to this. We just think it will sound, m- m- first of all, more cinematic. Cause like when the strings come in, you're like, oh my God. That's right. Um, but also, I think it's so much more emotional. I think that people still listen to that music long after. Unfortunately, we don't really watch that movie anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's that's true. That's true. Yeah, no, and it, it, it's 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 levels. It's about levels. You know, when he was talking about heavy metal, when Bear was talking about what he likes about heavy metal, and he talked about the power, and I was thinking, it's also just the the, the observation of levels and the use of levels. You know. Um, you know, I, I would suspect. You know, Kurt Cobain, I think, was the name of the the first name he mentioned in the interview. I think was mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain, and what Kurt Cobain did and Pixies before Nirvana and T.J. Harvey, as well as you know the, the quiet scream and the sque- scream, the uh, quiet loud um, oversimplification way to describe it, but the those levels where uh, things would seem like they were. Incredibly intimate, and then and then feel like they're in a giant space, uh, you know, cavernous world. Um, and you know, Nine Inch Nails also um, have music of, of that kind, which I think is one of the reasons that Trent Reznor has become so successful in doing music for film. You know, and a lot of the people that you look at, people that go from rock and roll to film music, that have done it really, really well. Uh, you know. There's some that are sort of the traditional singer songwriter, uh, not singer songwriter, but tr- well, yeah, traditional singer songwriter types like Randy Newman or, or someone that's doing uh, what he's doing with Pixar for mm-hmm. many years. But I'm thinking more like people doing scores, look uh, like Mark Knopfler and Peter Gabriel and um, you know John Greenwood from Radiohead and uh, and uh, Danny Elfman. You know uh, that they all hold on to. Uh, and Trent Reznor um, hold on to stuff that's really primal. Uh, there's you know there's hand claps and there's like things that sound like boneyard music and there's there's uh, skin stretched across a drum and there's you know hammers hitting things and you know there's you know uh, you know or, uh, David Burns and uh, you know his uh, sort of safari of the world music. Uh, and, and how he puts that into the, his work you know that stuff it's all got a real human heart um, people thought that it's synthesizers and and keyboards and all this would take music away from the human pulse but it, it really hasn't and it's it's most powerful when it's co-mingled you know when it has all those things yeah you
2: know? mm-hmm. yeah i'm thinking of the opening of 2001 a space odyssey where I think it very cleverly takes you from the black kind of intimacy of the movie theater. You start with a black screen and there's the the minuscule humming of the thus spoke, spake Zarathustra. Mm. And then it rises and it opens up and you see the monolith in space. And it's like, it takes you from that very kind of intimate primal place where it's just you kind of and this sound that maybe reminds you of like, I don't know, primordial memories that either from your own childhood or like, you know, way back when our species was evolved to hear that kind of murmuring and then it just rises and it takes you to the depths of space. So yeah, yeah, and you just traverse that psychological distance really quickly with the aid of the music.
1: Yeah, and, and you can't imagine it having the the visual having nearly the effect without that music. You know, mm-hmm. like and in, in, uh, it's like going back. There's this. You know, if you can watch a version of Star Wars without the music, I've seen it a few times. It's a different movie. It's a different movie. You know, I mean, yeah. whatever they, I whatever they paid John Williams wasn't enough. You know, like yeah, they, whatever it was, they own more because uh, it, it was a. Uh, by, he was by far the most consistent um, performer in that film, uh, in all the in that film franchise. You know, mm-hmm. was, oh, was
2: that's a, that's a good quote that he was the most consistent character, or
1: yeah, by far. These, mm-hmm. the character that holds up all the way through is John yeah. Williams. You
2: know, back to um, the yeah, I'm thinking of all the the chanting that he incorporated into Duel of the Fates, and it's like, I love yeah. the, the themes that we're connecting across all these properties and I'm sure our audience also loves thinking about this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, super fun stuff. Well, I, I think what we need to do is we gotta make sure that we get Bear McCreary to um, be part of whatever heavy metal's cooking up for this anniversary of this Oh, lubricant. definitely, yeah. I think we're gonna have to make some uh, connections and make sure that uh, good things happen.
2: Yeah, it was so great hearing about his tutelage under Elmer Bernstein, that's just incredible. <laughs> i can't imagine mean, the the charmed life that must have been
1: yeah it is amazing isn't it and and i, and I guarantee you that he uh, that bear and i know for a fact that uh he makes it that uh the serendipity of all that is yeah. uh manifesting him as a desire to do it for others you know yes. uh which is which is why he's a good guy like uh mm-hmm. if he didn't have that instinct in it it would stop with him but uh uh, Elmer's music and his music will continue to echo through all the people that uh pick up the baton after them,
2: definitely. So, well,
1: fun! There. What a what a what a fun show! Um, uh, thanks for everybody, thanks for listening, and look for those playlists. And I'll uh, I'll do some Spotification, uh, and get uh, some, some music going.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Just a reminder that the playlist should be up at the Heavy Metal YouTube channel. And I think we might have a Spotify. So stay tuned for that. We'll try our best to link it in the description and in all our our tweets and and promotions for this episode. So I've had a great time. This has been, well, Jeff Boucher, I hate to sign you off on your behalf. (laughs) I'm
1: all for it. (laughs)
2: this is jeff boucher's mind space and there's nowhere i'd rather be thanks so much bye jeff
1: take care thanks